Well, if you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Continue our series through the book of Mark that we're calling The Unserved King. And if you don't know why we're calling the series that, uh, sort of the theme of the book Jesus declares to us is that He is a King uh, that did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life for a ransom for many. And that is kind of where the the book centers on that theme. And so we're going to unpack that theme as we move through uh, this gospel together. Um, Today we're going to look at verses 14 through 34. And we're going to move through this section hopefully quickly. Uh, But to begin our time together I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. Of chapter 1. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word as we gather around the word of the King. Jesus knew we would be standing here today. He knew that we would be singing these songs. He knew that uh, this group of people would be gathered in this moment. And he would, he knew, and he's always known that we would need this word today that we're about to hear. And so we want to prepare our hearts for what Jesus has prepared for us. In his word, as we hear the word read, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Oh God, today as we Hear in your word of this Savior King who has come to deliver us from our sins, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and death. God, I pray that we would hear. I pray that we would believe. I pray that we would turn from all other allegiances. God, I pray today that we would put our hope solely in Jesus as King. The one who came and served us with a cross, a resurrection, and a promise. A promise to forgive us of our sins and raise us up forever to rule and reign with Him. Oh, would we embrace that good news today. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. More chocolate milk. Extra pizza and a snack machine. And more recess. I was on edge listening to a friend of mine give his stump speech for class president. We were in sixth grade and I was listening to him as he began started talking about these things. I remember thinking, he's an idiot. How in the world is he going to fulfill all these promises? How in the world is he going to... He's going to make sure we have more milk and more pizza and more recess and a snack machine. What in the world is he doing up there talking about all these things? But I knew that his little speech sounded a lot better than another girl. Her name was Deidre. And she spoke right before him. And she was extremely boring. And I would call her nerdy um, because she talked a lot about school. I don't even remember much of what she said. I remember she mentioned the library and study time. 
And I just remember she cared a lot about being at school. She actually liked being there. And she was somewhat thoughtful. And so when it came time to vote, guess who I voted for? Well, it wasn't Deidre. It was my idiot friend giving all of these promises. And guess what? He won the election. And he did not act on his promises. There was no more chocolate milk. There was no extra pizza. There was no recess. There were none of these things. It was a failed campaign in that way. His promises never came through. And we've all experienced that in middle school, high school. But if we threw in a Vote for Jesus t-shirt and a breakdance today, many of us hear the gospel in the same way. We evaluate the gospel in the same way. This sounds too good to be true. This sounds almost fairy tellish. How in the world, as we live in this world cursed with sin and death, how in the world could these promises ever be fulfilled? They all sound too good to be true. But even as we hear those promises, we still check the box to just, just in case they are true. And for a lot of us here today, that's the extent of our faith in Jesus. We just check the box in case this is true. We're going through the motions in case this is true. But the reality today is Jesus isn't campaigning for your vote. He's demanding your allegiance. And we see that in the declaration here of the gospel that we just read in verses 14 and 15. Notice verse 14. John has been arrested. This John the Baptist down by the river who has been preaching and declaring a coming judgment. And you must turn from your sins and declare that you deserve to be judged in baptism. And you must be raised up as a new person. You must be raised up as a new people. Because Jesus has come to baptize you not with water, but the Holy Spirit. And the point is, there is a fiery judgment coming. And if you don't turn from all other allegiances, if you don't turn from your sin, you will be wiped out by this Jesus. Notice John is arrested, this baptizer. And he's arrested for calling out the immorality of Herod. And he will eventually be beheaded for his proclamation. And John is arrested. And Mark very... Uh, abruptly says his ministry has come to an end. And so now it's time for Jesus. Now it is time for this one to come with this baptism of the Holy Spirit, with, with this ministry, even as we think about the one coming, John has said it is judgment. But notice how Jesus comes in. He comes into this place, Galilee. And this would have been a region around the Galilean Sea, north of Jerusalem. And it was a place strategic for Jesus. It was, it was an intersection of, of trade and commerce during that time. Everyone knew where this was. People would have to come through this area. And this is where Jesus begins to call out all of his disciples. But notice what he's doing here, proclaiming the gospel. And remember, we, we'll talk about this a lot. Gospel means good news. And gospel, good news, always comes with an announcement. And so now you have Jesus announcing the good news. And notice what he is saying. The time 
is fulfilled. The gospel of God. Now there is this event that is about to happen where the good news of God is going to unfold and the promises of God are going to come true. Why is that? Notice he says the kingdom of God is at hand. This this kingdom that we read about in the Old Testament, God's presence with his people, God anointing kings, God delivering his people from his enemies, God setting up shop and ruling and reigning on behalf of his people. Now that kingdom is at hand in flesh and blood. What he is declaring here is the kingdom now has eyelashes. The kingdom has a beard. The kingdom has fingernails. The kingdom is standing up and declaring notice. You must repent. You must turn. The kingdom is at hand. You must refuse all other allegiances and turn and believe this good news that the kingdom is at hand. And we would summarize Jesus' message here in this way. He's declaring that the reign of God that will overthrow sin and death forever, has invaded the world in his person, in his flesh and blood. And you must turn from everything else and trust him alone to deliver you from sin and death. And in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, you are promised to have your sins forgiven. You are promised to be raised from the dead and rule and reign with him forever. That's Jesus' message. Good news has come. You can be forgiven. Good news has come. If you believe in Him, you will be raised from the dead. Good news has come. You will be a part of His kingdom. But the reality is, if you do not turn to Him, you will be wiped out. And as we begin to move through this section, we begin to see, even in the Gospel of Mark, that this good news begins to interrupt life. The good news begins to interrupt Everything that's going on in this sinful world, it is an invasion. It is an interruption. And first of all, we see how this good news message interrupts the lives of fishermen. Notice verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, this sea where Jesus spends so much of his time. He would have been walking along the shore, probably a flat part of the sea. He would have walked up and he would have He would have seen boats and nets sprawled out in this wide area. And he goes to the brand names of the Galilean fishing community. Notice he saw Simon. Now we know this is Peter who's probably giving his testimony to Mark to write this down as his account of Jesus. And notice he's with his brother Andrew, who's already met Jesus and has brought Peter to Jesus, the brother of Simon. And they're casting nets for they were fishermen. Now, fishermen during this time, they weren't necessarily the poor folks, kind of middle class. This would have been a good job. Simon and Andrew probably ran their own company. And as we'll see, they were they were business partners with James and John, they're fishermen. They're out in the sun. They're doing what they do uh, every day. And here Jesus walks up. And notice verse 17. He said to them, follow me. It literally means come be with me. Come after me. Come stay with me. Come do what I do. 
And notice he says, I will make you fishers of men. And then verse 18, notice their response. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The picture there is they were out in the water with nets like they do every day, getting ready to go fish, preparing for the day, catching bait maybe. And here's Jesus. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll change what you're doing. And they drop the net. And they go to be with the Savior. Nothing else mattered but what Jesus had called them to do in that moment. But then notice verse 19. He goes a little farther. And he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And we begin to immediately realize this is the core of the disciples. These are men Jesus will pour his life into before his death. He will disciple them. He will mentor them. There are mills ahead of them. There are wondrous things that they are about to see, James and John. And it's significant, he says, the son of Zebedee. Zebedee, their father, would have taught them everything that they were doing in that moment. From the time they were little boys, they had been trained to be fishermen. And Zebedee had trained them to take over The family business. This is what you're going to do. The father determined what trade the sons would be a part of. Determined their identity. And here they are, mending nets, preparing nets. Notice, verse 20, and immediately he called them. Same words, follow me, come after me. And notice what they do. They left their father Zebedee in the boat. That's scandalous. Didn't even go home to pack. (laughs) Didn't even go home to get their bags ready. No conversation with Zebedee. Guys, where are you going? We have work to do. Leaves him standing in the boat. Mark says, when Jesus speaks, you obey. When Jesus calls, you follow. And notice, they followed him. Now, this is a beautiful picture of the way that the kingdom interrupts their lives. They go from family business to followers of Christ. Again, their whole life, they had been trained for what they were doing in that moment. They had been prepared to take over the family business. They are doing what they had committed their lives to. And then here in a moment, Jesus changes it all. We read about these men. We read letters they wrote to the church. We read of the way they stand up and preach the gospel. And we are here today because of their ministry. And Jesus changed it all in a moment with the words, follow me. Jesus would say later, if you do not love me more than father or mother, you're not worthy of me. If you make family an idol above me, you don't understand what it means to come after me. And his point here is your life, when I call you, begins and ends with me. That's what he calls us to. That he is the start and the finish of our life. And whatever he calls us to do, that's what we do. There's no debate. They go from fishermen to fishers of men. Now, this is significant throughout the rest of the book because remember we've talked about judgment and what is judgment. It's symbolized by water. And we go back to the flood where the earth is flooded in judgment with water. 
We think about the Exodus, where the enemies of God are crushed under the water of the Red Sea. We even think about the story of Jonah, where Jonah is tossed over the boat into judgment in water. And John has said, there is a judgment of fire coming. And notice when Jesus, who is going to bring that judgment of fire, comes. Notice what he's doing here, first of all. He's calling fishers of men who will rescue others from judgment. What he is calling these men to is they are to go out in the rescue boat with the gospel and they're going to cast nets over to the side and they're going to begin to pull men into rescue. They are going to be rescuers of men. We think about even some of us who remember Hurricane Katrina and we remember scenes like that where there is great flooding in cities that we, that we know so well. And we've seen people in rescue boats going in and and rescuing people off the top of houses. That is the picture of fishers of men we're to have at this point. These disciples will go into floods of judgment. There is a fire of judgment coming. And they are assigned to be those who rescue by proclaiming the gospel, this good news of the kingdom that has come to the ends of the earth. And I want to ask you today, has Jesus interrupted your life in that way? Has there ever been a time in your life where sort of business as usual, going through the motions, and Jesus steps in and there's an interruption and nothing can be the same? You see, you may not be called here today to lay down your nets, but you are called as a follower of Christ to take up your cross. And that means Jesus defines everything. That means you don't plan your life. You don't come up with your dreams and your goals and then ask Jesus if that's okay with Him. What this means is your life begins and ends with Him. And you come before Him and you say, what would you have me do? I'm following you, Jesus. Where are we going? Where are you taking me? And you may not be called to leave your family and go live in a hut somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. But you are called to make Jesus the one who defines your identity. You are to be known as a follower of Christ before you are known in any other way. What you do, who you are, oh, they're a follower of Christ. They go with Jesus. They have been with Jesus And so you may not be called to leave the cubicle today. And Jesus is probably not going to walk in tomorrow when you're in that Zoom meeting and say, let's go. And just get up. And people say, where'd he go? Maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he went to follow Jesus. I don't know. That's probably not going to happen in your life tomorrow. But everything you do tomorrow, including the Zoom call, is to be about proclaiming the gospel. You are to be a fisher of men Proclaiming the gospel, rescuing people from the judgment that's coming. Your life is to revolve around that good news message. You see, the reality is, if you are in Christ, you will be found with Christ. If you stand here today and say, my life is defined by the cross and resurrection, by the kingdom. I am completely righteous in Christ. I've been forgiven of my sins because of the cross of Christ. 
My eternity is sealed in Christ. If the gospel is true with you, you will be found with him. Following him, whatever he says, whatever he calls you to do on mission with him. When Jesus calls us to make disciples of the, to the ends of the earth, to call out the nations, to follow him. What does he say at the end of the Great Commission? And lo, I am with you always. That is if you are following me to the ends of the earth, because that's where I'm going. And I will be there with you. And for the one who says, where am I, where are we going, Jesus? It is to make disciples. It is to be fishers of men. And notice we continue in verse 21. He takes these men to the synagogue with him. (laughs) What does this look like, Jesus? And they went into Capernaum, and this was a small town where Jesus spent a lot of time. He made this a home base of operation for his ministry. Peter's home was there. Peter's family was there. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was, it's not the temple. It would have been almost like a chapel or a community center type place. And it's where rabbis and Jewish leaders would read the scripture and they would pray through the scripture. And then they would offer tradition traditional thoughts about the scripture interpretations of the scripture but notice he goes in and he was teaching and notice the response when jesus stands up to teach everybody gives their interpretation of the scripture people are quoting scholars about the scripture but when jesus comes in he's just straight teaching the scripture and they were astonished and this word is really hard to translate. It means they were aghast. They were shocked. They were scandalized. They didn't know what to think about this man who was coming in here and teaching. For he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And so when Jesus comes into the, to the synagogue, he's not telling us what other rabbis think about the law. What he is saying is you are searching the scriptures because in them you think you might have eternal life. Well, let me tell you how to have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. The scriptures are standing before you. And Jesus is not speaking on behalf of anyone else. He is speaking for himself. And they are shocked. And they are aghast. And they are scandalized. They don't understand what's going on. And Jesus then gives us an illustration of what's going on. Notice verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man of unclean spirit. Now, what does this look like? The authority of Jesus' word, how is it fleshed out? Well, all of the sudden, demons begin to emerge. A man with an unclean spirit. Now, it is absolutely true that there is a spiritual realm all around, even right now, that we don't see. And the Old Testament teaches us that there are angels and there are demons and there are wars and there are battles that happen between the forces of darkness that we don't see. And at the end of time, the spiritual and the physical will be made manifest and we will see it all. But here there is an unclean spirit that has infected a person and possesses them, has taken over their body. Not an angel, but a demon who is not submitted to God, who is fighting against God and who has taken over this body. And notice he cries out and notice verse 24. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He knows who Jesus is. 
Everybody in the, in the synagogue is standing around saying, who is this teacher? Well, the demon knows who he is. He's Jesus of Nazareth, a Nazarene, a backwoods preacher who's standing up in the synagogue. And notice, have you come to destroy us? The, the scribes are standing back saying, who is this man? And the demons say, oh, it's the Holy One of God. He has been set apart to wage war against the forces of darkness. And we are the forces of darkness. And we are terrified in this moment. And Jesus, verse 25, rebuked him. And he said, be silent. He said to him, shut it. And then he calls him out of this man. And the unclean spirit convulsing him. The man is seizing and he is crying out with a loud voice. It came, it came out of him. Now, the scene would have been hard to watch. You, you, just imagine the synagogue, this nice, pristine, everybody's got their robes on, everybody's just reading the scripture. Jesus shows up. Who is this guy? And all of a sudden we have demon activity. I was reading one writer this week and he said in the Old Testament, you, you rarely saw scenes like this. So why is this going on in the synagogue? It's because when Jesus shows up, all hell breaks loose. Because they know who he is and they are scared to death. And he begins to pull this demon out of this body and it would have been painful to watch. He is convulsing. He is raging. There is a scream. It wasn't your pretty, uh, nice scene for worship on that Sunday. People ain't coming back to this synagogue. First time guests aren't signing the card. Notice verse 27. They were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with this authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. So not only is he referring to himself when he's referring to the law and prophets, he, he is commanding things we don't even see. He is taking control over the demonic world. And notice what happens. And at once, his fame began to spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. People begin to talk about Jesus. And later on, we're going to see this is a problem for Jesus. It's not something he wanted. He moves away from the fame. But here the demons knew who he was. But those who knew the scripture did not. Think about that as you sit there with a Bible in your hand. Think about that as you look at your phone and read scripture. Think about that. The demons know who Jesus is. Do you really know who he is? The demons shudder in his presence. James, James describes a faith of demons. They know it, they can check the box. Who is Jesus to you? Oh, we can tell you who he is. He's the Holy One of God who's come to destroy us. Who is he to you? Do you know Jesus? You see, maybe you're here today and Jesus needs to interrupt your tradition. He needs to interrupt your superficial religion. You gathered here today to, to check a box. You're going to check the box of church and then do whatever you want Monday through Saturday. You will endure this interruption in your life 
because you think it makes Jesus happy with you and you can check the box and then do whatever you want the rest of the week. How many Christians do that on Sunday? And and you begin a, a religion in and of yourself. The Bible's just this tip book of verses that you tack on and you post to Instagram. The Bible is, is something, it's just sort of Bible trivia so you can win theological deba- debates. Many of us here today, we believe that the Bible is just God's opinion. And right now in your life, you agree with God's opinion. But there may be a day where you disagree with God and that's going to be okay. You can critique Him. And that's the way you review the Bible. And you're just going through the motions until you get tired of this. And by the way, if you're just going through the motions, you will get tired of this. If you're not here to hear the authoritative king who calls even demons to surrender to him. If you don't understand it that way, you're going to yawn one day and move on to something else. The scribes say, oh, we can't ignore this one. They are shocked. And the demons know exactly who he is. Flesh and blood that caused them to submit to his words. The demons can check the box, but they realize his word cannot be questioned. This is why when I talk to people about the gospel, rarely do I ask them, are you a Christian? Because so many times I ask people, are you a Christian? What church do you go to? And they can give all the answers. That they can, they can talk about any church. There's all kinds of churches. They can give names of churches. They can even give you Bible verses that they read on social media that day. They, Facebook account, Christian, they got it. What I want to get to with people is say, no, are you a follower of Christ? And then, just like we have on our Connect card... Are you following Christ? Because the one who hears the word of Christ and understands who this one is, when he says, follow me, you follow. Demons tremble. He calls us to follow him to rescue. And so the question for you here today is, are you following Christ? Not did you show up here just to check a box and move on, but are you following Christ? Or do you have demonic faith where Jesus is just your mascot? You sort of live your life however you want to and he cheers you on. Do you realize that's demonic faith? Or do you begin and say, no, you're Lord and you're King. What would you, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? You, you are the one who calls the shots. Would you say that today to Jesus? If you trust Him to save you from your sins, you can trust Him to tell you what to do with your life. He's good. And notice we continue to see the power of the gospel. Immediately they left the synagogue and they entered the house of Simon. And we believe that Peter's house was right next to the synagogue. And notice Andrew with James and John, they're all together. And they enter Simon's mother-in-law house. And notice she lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And so they're beginning to see the power of his word. They're they're beginning to see the authority that he possesses. And and so Simon, think about this. this, His mother-in-law who has been in his home and he he has watched her suffer. And his wife has suffered 
with her mom. Jesus, you've got to come see her. Verse 31. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. And here the language is a picture of the resurrection. He raised her up. He took her by the hand and lifted her up. And there would have been people saying, no, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. She's sick. She's tired. She, she's not going to be able to do anything. What, what are you asking her to do? Let us help you. And immediately she gets up and walks around and goes and fixes dinner. From death's doorstep to fixing supper. Immediately, the text says. Why? The power of the kingdom is in her presence. And notice the curse of sin. We don't know what kind of sickness she had. We do know our bodies fighting off something with a fever. Devastated in this moment. There has been no hope for her. Everybody around her is waiting for her to die. Jesus comes in and she is immediately healed from death's doorstep to serving the king. Healed and released from sickness, the curse of sin, to serving the king. And notice what happens. That evening they brought to him all who were sick, physically sick, enduring the curse of sin. Death has taken hold of their bodies and those who are oppressed, captured by demons. And the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, we see his authority over demons. I don't want you telling people who I am. The credibility of a demon only goes so far. I don't want to be known as some magician. No, I will tell people who I am through a cross and resurrection. But but we see the master calling out demons and healing the sick. And he literally interrupts the curse of sin and death in the world and shows his power over it. Satan brings sin into the world. Sin brings death into the world. And here Jesus steps on planet earth and says, I control all of those things. And I will reverse all of those things. See, Jesus' point is he's the answer. See, I, even this week, we, as you know, my grandparents have COVID. My granddad died yesterday of COVID. And as of right now, we're waiting for my grandmother to die of COVID. And it's been a horrible week, just to be honest with you. Can't see them, can't be around them. My granddad spent two weeks in the hospital alone and finally died. Can't console my grandmother. Preparing for a 15-minute Graveside service tomorrow in Tennessee where my grandmother will have to sit in the car and watch what goes on. It's, it's horrible. It's gut-wrenching. And reading this passage this week, you begin to go, what should you pray? And I'll be honest with you, I never once thought I should pray that they're healed. Because that's not the point of the passage. Sometimes Jesus heals sickness. Sometimes he allows us to go to heaven and be with him because that's even better. Either way, the answer is not healing or death. The answer is Jesus. And what my granddad needed yesterday was Jesus, and I'm glad he got Jesus. And what my grandmother needs right now is Jesus. And I'm praying she goes to Jesus soon. Because that's the point. 
the good news has invaded the earth and is reversing sin and death. And what you need more than anything, what you need more than an exorcism, more than what you need than the traditions of men, more than what you need more than a healing, you need Jesus to rescue you from your sin and death. And that's the picture he paints here. We Think about this. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus heals Simon Peter's mom. But guess what? Or stepmother or mother-in-law. They both die eventually. His point is that the healing isn't the answer. The resurrection in that moment is not the answer. There is a final resurrection coming. And there's a window into it for us. And the question for you today is, do you trust Jesus? What we've seen here today is just a day in the life, a ministry of Jesus in Capernaum. And by the way, it's on the Sabbath. Jesus worked a lot on Sunday, Saturday, sorry. Imagine at the end of this day, Jesus is exhausted. This is just what he does. And this is what he's doing in this moment right now. You're here today and you've heard the good news of the kingdom. The question is, will you follow him? Will our identity begin and end with him? Will you see him as superior to your stale religion? Will you see him as the reverser of sin and death? Will you follow him? You see, when the kingdom shows up, it's not like this place where we go on vacation and we take pictures and we post them on Facebook, and I had a fun time on vacation. When the kingdom shows up, we pack our bags and move. We go to live somewhere else, essentially. We begin to live in a new kingdom, not just on Sunday mornings. It becomes our life. Imagine being on a rooftop in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And the rescue boat shows up and you just wave at it. Glad you guys are here. Imagine being drowning in the water and the rescue boat shows up. And you just sort of dog paddle, smile and wave. No, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to be clawing to get to the rescue boat. You're going to be running to be rescued. And that's what it means to follow Jesus today. Is to run to Him. Trust Him to rescue you from sin and death. Trust Him that He's the one who will make all things new. The reality is Jesus isn't campaigning for your vote. It's a lot scarier than that. No, He's commanding your allegiance. But the good news is, He always fulfills His promises.